Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your graduate student co-host, Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, and I'm excited to take a little time to do kind of one of our... It's not an immediate reaction episode like we've done in the past, where we podcast as soon as we get out of the theater we gave ourselves a little time to kind of process this movie but we're going to be talking a little bit about aquaman today so i'm looking forward to just kind of um just chatting i guess a bit about the film and kind of get our impressions and maybe take a little bit at just some of the overarching themes yeah i think it'll be fun to talk about Uh, brandon and i had originally planned to do to podcast right after and do a reaction episode but the movie was longer than we yeah, anticipated. Can I, yeah. can I jump in? It, it, yeah. 143 minutes is the runtime. So, wow. yeah, which is really long, right? I'm, it feels mm-hmm. like, I just don't, I feel like movies are just getting longer. I think I don't, yeah. that's well over two hours. I don't yeah. know. And yeah, it felt and long. It started early. Our day started early, that is. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I think by that point, it would have been hard to put too many sentences together. Hopefully I've rested enough by now. <laughs> Yeah, and really got to process the film, you know, and really bring some insightful and deep analysis of the characters. And well, themes. let's not set the expectation <laughs> too high here. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I don't know why. It seems like movies, I don't know the history, so I shouldn't speculate. I remember the Titanic being quite long. Schindler's yeah. List was quite long. Mm-hmm. That seemed warranted. Wait, can but I then, jump in again? Oh, I'm sorry, I keep yeah. interrupting. Does oh, this does just kind of overall impression? Does Aquaman kind of fit into the to kind of the league of the those films? Oh, Schindler's List, Titanic. <laughs> no, I, sh- I shouldn't. Well, the Titanic is more relevant only because of the ocean theme. Right there, you go. If Aquaman had been there, maybe that would have been a really different film. Well, I think so, and also <laughs> I wonder what kind of under ocean stuff was going on at the right. time. Right now, there's a there's kind of a twist. Who put that iceberg there? Was it King exactly. Worm? I don't know. No, but I agree. It's not. Again, there are some good long movies, but it does seem like the default is that they seem longer. But I haven't seen any data on this, so. Maybe I'll look it up sometime, but it does, yeah. it feels that way to me. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like it shifted from like um, an hour and 45 minutes to now the standard feels like it's over two hours, which mm-hmm. I'm I'm not complaining about, but not every movie probably needs that much time to tell the story. I don't know. I've never made no, a movie. No, that was one that. of the things that we said yesterday right after the movie is that it did seem like there were certain things that could have been cut out because they didn't seem to really advance the plot line or deepen anything. And I almost never say that. Like, I, I feel like I've heard a lot of people say that people said stuff like that to me about Wonder Woman. I'm like, no, every scene was needed and perfect. Mm-hmm. So, but this one, it, it did seem soon. I guess we should say now there are going to be full spoilers. In this, so yeah, you've been warned. And, and 
you know, not to get into my um, kind of review or thoughts about the movie too early, because I'd like to start with the classic summary. But on that note, yes, there are going to be spoilers. But a spoiler, maybe in and of itself, is there really aren't that many spoilers. Um, If you've seen the trailer, you pretty much understand the plot, uh, I think. Yeah, I think there's there are some surprises but a lot of it yes. is is pretty predictable right yeah well maybe i'll start with one of the kind of classic uh wikipedia aided summaries then um okay. sure so really the movie starts off i, I just like maybe as a starting point apparently this film takes place one year after the events of justice league and that that seemed a little unclear to me uh, they certainly reference um at one point that um Aquaman was a part of the fight against Steppenwolf, the main kind of villain of Justice League. Without that reference, it probably I wouldn't have been able to place the timeline of the film probably at all. Um, so I think that's worth maybe just noting. But it starts off with just kind of the depiction of um, Aquaman's or Arthur Curry's dad, Thomas Curry, who kind of rescues um, this woman who he sees during a storm, who turns out to be Atlana, who is Aquaman's mom, and they have this very nice relationship, and they have a son who's Arthur Curry, Aquaman. And um, eventually Atlana's kind of forced to abandon her family and go to Atlantis again because she was involved in an arranged marriage, and these kind of guards or military people came for her. Um, and that kind of is, is the last time that Aquaman sees her, at least, spoiler, it, it comes up again in the movie. So then uh, it kind of jumps ahead. Aquaman's an adult now. He's kind of battling or saving the submarine. Meets his new arch enemies, uh, Manta, who I have some more thoughts about I'd like to share. And uh, as the plot kind of unfolds, it turns out that Aquaman's brother, Orm, who's the current king of Atlantis, has kind of gotten really sick of humans up on the surface who are just kind of throwing their garbage and throwing their junk in the ocean and is kind of trying to intimidate the other kingdoms um, under the sea to joining him so he can become Ocean Master, which gives him kind of full military strength so he can go to war with the surface for being um, just so disrespectful, I guess, towards the ocean. And um, through kind of a series of events, Aquaman recovers the kind of sacred trident of Atlan, which gives him kind of the... Only, you know, only the true heir of the king can kind of wield it. So he uses that, and then that kind of ramps up his Aquaman powers and his ability to kind of control the ocean. And he's able to defeat Orm and kind of save the day and prevent the war. That's kind of a really sp- abbreviated version of the film, but I don't know how much more kind of in-depth. Are, are there any kind of really main details? Mira is a really big part of kind of his journey and helps him along, and I think really steals the show in a pretty major way. Um, that's kind of the overall quick version of the plot. That's a that's a great summary, and I think that's a good jumping off point for our points. I also um, hope you don't mind, but I wanted to share some data that I found through googling oh, about I movie. I don't mind at all. I'm, I'm I'm excited to learn. And I, I'll link to this in the show notes. I haven't obviously since you've heard the length of time between me wondering and then looking it up to evaluate how good this data is, but it it looks legit. The data was pulled from IMDb. There's an article on Business Insider, so I'll link to that. And um, this research was done by Dr. Randall Olson, who's an expert on data visualization. And apparently what he found is that overall average feature film lengths have not increased, but it's a little more of a complex pattern. So what happened is, I guess... 
From 1950 to 1965, the average runtime for top films increased, gaining about 20 minutes on average. But then that trend reversed from 1965 to 1985, where movies got shorter again, where they lost about 10 minutes in their runtime. And then between 1985 and 2000, feature films grew back to the same length as in the 60s. And then Dr. Olson explains, this may explain why it's usually millennials born 1980 to 2000. And both of us are, I'm pretty close to in that range, and you're in that range, mm-hmm. complaining that movies have gotten longer than they used to be. If you grew up watching movies in the 1980s, they have gotten longer for you. Meanwhile, Generation Xers are shaking their head at millennials, wondering what the heck they're talking about, as usual. All right. As usual. That's what the quote right. says. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> so, so, Dr. Rindle concludes movies aren't arbitrarily getting longer so much as they're returning to a status quo set in 1965. So that's why it's always good to look at the data and not just go with the gut. And it also is a good example of, like, referencing your own time period and right. experience. So they are getting longer depending on when your reference point is. Yeah. I, another kind of side note, if you don't mind me jumping from kind of side note to side note, um, last night, as Katie and I were kind of walking into the theater, it was pretty sparse, I have to say. And Katie, you asked me, isn't today the opening night? And I said, oh, no, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure it, it started a week ago. I was very much wrong. Last night was the opening night for Aquaman. I can't believe that oh. the theater was that empty on a Friday night. It seemed like there were maybe 15 people in there. It maybe was... a little more than that. Yeah, I, I would say not many, though. I would say I probably, know, I yeah. no longer trust my estimates. Right. Numbers. <laughs> well, and, you know, maybe considering different points in time, maybe there were more or less people in the theater. We, we really can't be sure. But... Let's put it this way. The other opening nights we've gone for things, it seems like the theater is much more packed. Well, as a frame of reference, we saw A Star is Born, I think, several weeks, maybe, after it Even a premiered. month, I think. Yeah, and that was almost full. I, I mm-hmm. So, that's interesting. I wonder what the data kind of suggests. I haven't looked at... Um, kind of the, I guess the box office three hundred and eighty three point four million. I'm looking here um, oh. on a two hundred million budget. It looks like so. I mean, I guess that's actually a pretty good box office as far as my really, really, really limited understanding of box office numbers is. But but not not a lot of fans in Fargo at eight fifteen, no. which is like prime time. Pretty prime. yeah, exactly. So but hmm. but but another thing to consider is because of that specific time we had to go to the theater that did not have the recliner chairs. That's so true. that's another variable that we haven't brought in. That really falls outside of kind of the scope of the podcast, <laughs> but it's certainly something that I'm still puzzling over. <laughs> it, you know, those chairs were funny because they leaned back, but then they bounced forward again. So the people in front of me kept like mm-hmm. popping back and forth. And honestly, oh, yeah. it, it is funny how one adjusts to... Having those fancy, what are they called? Dream dream loungers. Dream loungers. Yeah, the person That's behind good me. Marketing and branding oh, in, yeah. in a dream lounger. Certainly, I, I have to comment just thinking about the chairs and their kind of aggressive movement. Um, <laughs> again, very outside of the kind of scope of the show, but the person behind me must have had very long legs because their knees were pushing into my chair. So not only was it less comfortable than the typical chair I sit in, but there was someone else who was kind of arbitrarily controlling the kind of angle with which I was able to recline, which is just made for a very distracting movie 
viewing experience. You seemed like you were leaning forward, and I had to lean back. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we, maybe this this might explain some of our um, feelings about the movie <laughs> with the physical discomfort. <laughs> and I guess, given that the whole theater, as we just said, was fairly empty, we could have moved very easily. <laughs> so we've set the scene and the context for everything we're about to say. <laughs> With that being said, everyone really gets the full picture now of our viewing experience so they can understand the <laughs> lens through which we're about to kind of analyze or <laughs> Brandon kind of had knees in his back and I yeah. had someone's back in my laps. <laughs> the person in front of you was <laughs> reclining back like weirdly far. I did observe that <laughs> like aggressively far back. I, 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 I was actually surprised the chair could go that far. I was surprised too. It wasn't like a mild, like airplane seat where it kind of goes back and no. is uncomfortable. It was it's aggressive. Stable. It's more like a surprise. <laughs> hitting was, your knees repeatedly. It was very bizarre. There's a lot yes. of factors that went into the kind of watching this movie. I'm recognizing now. Yes, very long days, but weird um, seating experience, um, and apparently a weird perspective from the time period in which we were born yeah. in terms of, like, well, should we talk about the movie now? With <laughs> that being that said, <laughs> let's dig in. So maybe I'll start. Um, my overall impression, really, I, generally I liked it. I've been trying to think about on kind of a 1 to 10 scale, um, kind of the traditional movie rating scale, 1 being worst movie ever 10 being best movie ever i think i'd put it at probably a 6.5 i thought it was pretty good um the visuals i thought were actually um very good especially i think that dc is in the past sometimes lacked a little bit in the visual department um not for all of the movies but for some and i thought this one actually did okay there was only a couple of times where it really kind of looked pretty cgi-y for lack of a better word um, I thought that they did a nicer job just kind of thinking of DC in general of, of balancing the humor in the film a little bit better than they've done in the past. It felt pretty natural. Um, the characters had a pretty good rapport um, and it, it wasn't too serious. It didn't seem like it was taking itself really too serious. Um, at the same time, it, it like you've kind of already pointed out and you said this last night too, it's pretty predictable. Um, there weren't really any big surprises. I thought everything was... Um, pretty well choreographed um, as to what was going to happen and it did seem really long as we've kind of already talked about and I think the specific sequence for me that seemed really long was looking for the trident um, of course that was a very integral part of the story but if I just had to without thinking about it very much guess it felt like almost like 70% of the story was trying to find this trident and there were several steps involved in finding it that involved traveling to a lot of different places and at one point, I actually got a little bit confused about the links between those steps. And I kind of pointed this out to you last night um, to get a little bit specific. They have this bottle that they got in the middle of the desert in this tomb for the kind of deserters were. And um, Arthur and Mira put this bottle kind of on the statue of this king, which is supposed to help them see where the trident is. And they kind of put it in the hand of the statue and take a look through and it kind of has this design on the inside that points off to where the trident is, but it seemed like it was just pointing out in the ocean, and, it, and somehow that led them to the direct location where the trident was in the trench. And that, for some reason there, I, I got very confused. I didn't understand exactly how they looked through that bottle and went, oh yeah, of course the trident is in the trench. Um, so that was kind of different for me, um, but I, I don't know. It, 
it it was pretty good. Uh, generally, I, I thought it was pretty good. I don't know. It just seemed like a lot of time trying to find the trident. And also, mm-hmm. I thought I thought Manta was pretty cool, um, but it, he almost felt like um, he was, his purpose in the film was just to set up the sequel and to add a little bit of padding to the runtime in the middle with another pretty long fight um, where he was like thrown into the shore of the water, but then is seen again like floating in the ocean on a door. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought that this scene that they definitely could have condensed was everything that happened in Italy. I think uh-huh. that they wanted to show she was being tracked, and therefore he is being tracked, and also, you know, Manta, Black Manta is seeking revenge and all that stuff. And, you know, that that makes sense, but it didn't. It seemed like it was very long fight sequences with these kind of, you know, I don't, which were cool, but I don't know mm-hmm. that we needed that for quite as long mm-hmm. as as it was they could have cut that out i thought the other thing that i thought they got from having um black manta and i'm trying to pull up my imdb is freezing up because i thought the actor who played him was really good for the short parts that he had there and his like the costume for that was super cool too yes uh, I... Well, I can't find it, but sorry, you were saying. No, that's okay. I was just going to jump to another thought while you were looking. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say another thing that kind of, it, it distracts me a little bit, I think, just in, in the superhero films in general, and I don't think there's any way to kind of get around this, but early on in the film, King Orm makes an, it's I mean, it's basically an attack on the surface world where there are these gigantic kind of tides that come in and push all of this garbage onto the shores and kind of crash all these warships, which is very devastating. And it, this is where I always get kind of caught up in these superhero movies, is at that time, it would seem like Aquaman would maybe go, you know what, this is pretty problematic. Uh, you know, I, I would like to handle this King Orm thing, but he wasn't really committed to it. He didn't want to be the king of Atlantis, but he recognized that there was pretty severe danger. It seems like it would have been a really appropriate time to go, hey, Superman, um, mm-hmm. you're stronger than the whole Justice League as evidenced by the Justice League where you've kind of fought everyone at once and beat pretty much beat them all. Could you help with this? This is a really big problem. And so that always kind of distracts me in these movies where there's something that's like, that was a global event but didn't get the attention of the other like very powerful beings in the world. And it, uh, there are people who know like, the people in the Justice League know that Atlantis exists. They've met Aquaman, so they kind of understand the context. Whereas the rest of the world thought it was maybe like a weird natural disaster or something. Yeah, that that's that's a fantastic point. Where as I think, and that's something that people have praised Marvel movies for is just mm-hmm. that they have this rich universe and they're good at like having things fit the movies fit within one another within the timeline and the cast of characters and who knows who and who's aware of what and so. I agree. I the the other thing I was going to say about Black Manta was that one point is that Arthur kind of has the chance to save Black Manta's father, right? And mm-hmm. from drowning. And I think there are some superheroes that probably would have done that. Like Oh yeah. Wonder Woman, for example, would have done that. I would that. say probably everyone else in the Justice League. I but, think so. Yeah. You know, I mean Batman, I mean maybe not losing a maybe parent. Maybe not. Yeah, right. Exactly. But, yeah, but I don't know. What do you think? Would you think he would do it or not? I mean, I understand the calculation is the danger, but, right. you know, I felt a lot of sympathy. I th- for, I think know. that um, 
the way that I think about Batman, he would have saved that that person, but maybe not the Batman that we've seen in kind of this universe so far, who is um, a little bit more laissez-faire, I guess, with just the way that he treats life, um, yeah. for kind of lack of a better word of describing it, but yeah. Oh, that's but, true. So that was no that stood out to me, and then he it seemed like a point of, I guess, change for him or or development. Right. Where for he Arthur. later on says, yeah, that he kind of instead of killing his brother, he decides he's going to take mercy on him. Right. Yeah. That that is kind of interesting because certainly the loss of his mom was a incredibly impactful um, event for him. So it is kind of interesting that he would maybe it was pretty casually um you know let uh, manta's father die or kind of the circumstances around that um so yeah I, I guess that is kind of it is interesting but you're right it i think probably it was very intentionally kind of part of the story to create that kind of opportunity for growth where then he does not kill orm um in kind of the final fight uh, yeah and he even references i've done you know he tells me i've done bad things before you know yeah, like and a that week kind ago. of stuff yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and you can also see where the rage comes from and that king orm is kind of capitalizing on that too yeah. he's 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 trying he's good at manipulating things so he can pull people together to get what he wants basically right what did you think about King Orm's kind of motivations, um, just in terms of the kind of pollution and and treatment of wildlife and kind of destruction of the ocean being kind of his motivating factor to say, you know, the people on the surface are kind of the worst? Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. And because of his personality, he seemed very power hungry and kind yeah. of insecure about not being the rightful king. Mm. And so I almost wondered, I mean, I don't think he liked that the oceans were being polluted or anything like that, but I feel almost like he was using that as a way to say, and I can save you and to turn people against ideas of making mm -hmm. peace with land dwellers. Right. And that was my impression as he talks to the different kingdoms and tries to unite them, that he's kind of very motivated so that he can gain power and kind of shaping things through whatever he thinks will get them on board with his vision and make it so that Arthur can never claim the throne. I think you're spot on, especially I think the the key evidence for your position, which, like I said, I think is, is spot on, is that he kind of fakes that attack with the submarine pretty early yeah. on in the movie. Um, that does kind of show a level of disingenuous. Ingenuity. He's pretty, being pretty disingenuous about his motivation. Um, I think that the way that they kind of depicted him was a um, attempting to be kind of a comic book accurate depiction of Orm. But I found myself wondering if the character would have been a lot more maybe interesting and relatable if they kind of dialed back the power hungry piece and very much made his motivation because of like the destruction of the ocean as a result of kind of human um, pollution and, and treatment of the environment. I thought that might have maybe been a different story and made him a more compelling villain than just like I want to just be the most powerful or have the biggest army or whatever. Yeah, it would have made it more complex and sympathetic. I mean, ultimately, Arthur's reasons for sparing his life seem twofold, which is one, that he decides that a good king should show mercy. But secondly, because his mother, he doesn't, 
he, his mother clearly doesn't want him to do that, you know? Right. And so it, it seems like to her. So I agree. They, it could have been, you know, it's easier to kind of dismiss him as a pretty self-centered person with high levels of narcissism mm-hmm. and kind of and justifies the means kind of view. And then, you know, controlling dominant, um, mm-hmm. not really caring about other people's feelings and then some insecurity about what he feels he's entitled to, right? Mm-hmm. And it does seem like a lot of his his thoughts, like, he, you know, Mira points this out, like, there, he says, she says, your mother taught us to try to basically try to bridge the two worlds. And he's like, yeah, and she was executed for that. So, mm-hmm. and he's very derogatory when he's talking about Arthur calls him a half-breed and yeah. stuff like that. So... A lot of it does seem kind of like, like building around prejudice and in, in seeking power or something like that. Maybe kind of just shifting gears a little bit to his mother, another scene that I have found myself um, being maybe a little bit frustrated with was the kind of reuniting of Arthur and his mother, um, Atlanta, I think is how you pronounce that, or Atlanta. Um, because it, I mean, the real a big big huge motivating factor and and kind of component of of arthur's life and his story was this desire to meet his mom which was kind of his motivation to train because he was kind of under the impression that he was going to get to meet his mom when he was ready and uh kind of grew up without her and and so then when he finally met her again after believing she had been dead um, they kind of talk for just a couple of seconds and then he just walks away and i found myself feeling like maybe a little, little, little bit less time looking for the Trident and a little more time kind of exploring what should have been a very impactful and kind of emotional um, reuniting of a, of a parent and a child. Yeah, I agree because it's clearly affected him a lot. I mean, he blames himself. And I they do touch on that very yes. briefly. And I get that everything's urgent, but right. it still seems like, you know, that... I was a little, I mean, I had the sense that perhaps she was still alive. I wasn't 100% sure mm-hmm. about that, and I didn't know how they'd spin that, especially after seeing, like, where she went. And I was like, oh, I don't think that anyone could survive that. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, I agree there could have been more to develop there, you know, even under the circumstances. Because of how, I mean, he, he does seem to carry around guilt, although he is one of the... He certainly seems way lower on, like, the personality trait neuroticism oh, or yeah. prone to negative mood than, like, bad uh-huh. or something. Like, he seems, like, upset about some things, but he seems to, like, be pretty confident about the stuff he can do and feel pretty good about it and kind of move on from things. Not uncaring or callous or anything like no. that, but... Absolutely, you know, actually, I, absolutely, I jotted this down, you know, he struggles, I think, a little bit with, like, alienation from kind of both of these cultures that he belongs to and not feeling like maybe he fits in with either, and a little bit maybe with, like, self-esteem and am I kind of worthy to be the king, which I think are things that are probably very, would be very normal, but I actually kind of noted down the same thing. I made this kind of list of, like, traumatic events that he's been experienced or exposed to, like witnessing that violence with his mother when he was younger, losing his mother, kind of undergoing this this bullying for growing up, um, and just on like, a whole number of things, not to mention the kind of events or experiences related specifically to trying to become a superhero. And despite all that, you're very much right. He's very, uh, seems to be very 
like psychologically resilient because for the most part he's kind of just making jokes and and generally kind of makes light of things and is able to just kind of push on and uh and for the most part is pretty much okay yeah i agree because it does seem like some of it is wondering if he's really to be king but i even get more of a feel like it's about not being at all familiar with atlantis like he even though like he's obviously connected to that and he's you know, been trained and he's by um, Volko and who I loved. I thought he was great, by the yes. way. Yes. Um, you know, he's and he's been connected all along to that part of his family heritage. He hasn't really spent time there, and it seems like completely unfamiliar to him. And so, the idea that you would rule a place that you're completely unfamiliar with, understandably, and also that he is resentful towards because of what they did to his mother, which is understandable. So it did seem like part of it is like, can I do it? But also part of it was it's unfamiliar. And also I'm angry with them for what they did to my mom. And so, you know, it kind of, even there, it seems like he's again, like I think of Batman and his brooding (laughs) and how different it is. It just seems very different, you know, or even the depth of Wonder Woman's, basically empathy and thoughts and feelings about all of these things he seems kind of more like a just like easygoing kind of dude or something absolutely yeah it's a it's a real change of pace from the very kind of serious or i I get i guess on that i'm focusing kind of on the depiction of batman versus superman which i very much Mm -hmm. enjoy as a film but it's very much about two characters who are very serious and take their roles in the world and as heroes um very seriously so it it very much is a kind of change of pace from that but i thought it was very much welcome and i I enjoyed the character um and quite a bit i think that uh, that jason moe is such a really talented um actor as well and really brings a pretty fun kind of um it's not the aquaman that i kind of recognize i think the aquaman that i know from the comics is a little bit more boring for lack of better word i think jason momoa's kind of um depiction of aquaman is actually pretty cool yeah, speaking of that depiction, something that I wanted to mention that I thought was pretty cool. Apparently, someone named Walter Cha tweeted, In Aquaman, the hero is a product of Asian-Caucasian miscegenation, played by, which I had to look up and also figure out how to pronounce, because I've seen that word, but it's one of the things I wanted to make sure I knew how to sure. say, and I still might have mispronounced it. But um, what that refers to is the... the quote-unquote interbreeding of people considered to be of different racial types. So, um, back to the tweet. In Aquaman, the hero is a product of Asian-Caucasian miscegenation played by an actor of mixed Native Hawaiian heritage. My kids are mixed in exactly the same way. Even if the film wasn't great, I would have loved it just for doing this. Thanks. And it's the director he adds on Twitter, seriously. So um, the way I read it made it sound like even if the film sucked, but that, I don't think that's what he meant. I think he meant the film was great, and I also love this, but the way I read it was weird. So the director, James Wan, responded, Arthur's the very definition of biracial, half-surface dweller, half-Atlantean. Momoa's mixed heritage perfectly aligns with this. As the world becomes increasingly diversified slash mixed, it's great to have a character modern kids can identify with. This was an important message for us. So it was clearly oh, I really very that. intentional. And this, there's an interesting article 
and Slate, which I'll link to in the show notes, that kind of talks about how the movie was influenced by the science fiction writer H.P. Lovecraft, who was an American writer who lived from 1890 to 1937. And listeners might be familiar with him. He's pretty famous now. He, his fame was after he died. But um, wrote a lot of horror fiction. But he's also known for being writing a lot of racist stuff. Even for considering the time period, it stood out for its racism. And um, so the movie had some things that were influenced. And apparently, I missed this, but they they even have some of his books sitting out on the table in oh. certain scenes. But the way that they changed it intentionally is that some of Lovecraft's work, which I am not that familiar with, I have to mm-hmm. say, um, even though, again, he's pretty famous now for sci-fi stuff, kind of you see some of his apparently racist views and then because he has these themes of kind of quote-unquote mixed race relationships and then leading to problems and destruction. And so... In this case, this is the end of what the Slate article, the Slate article is called Aquaman owes a lot to H.P. Lovecraft. It's also his worst nightmare uh, by Keith Phipps. Um, and then the kind of sub-headline is the racist author influenced the DC movie and would have hated it. And so it says on the last line that, um, let's see, he says that the what they really try to do, the main message, is show that this land-dwelling and sea-dwelling relationship and having the son that he's the bridge and the hope that can bring those worlds together. And it's actually really cool that he has these two different family histories that they come together and make him very powerful and able to connect things and that it's a positive thing and so they're saying that kind of sends the exact opposite message of this idea of people from different backgrounds coming together falling in love and changing the world basically so yeah i thought that was cool that is really cool so i really love not only the message but kind of the intentionality of that and kind of taking um what's kind of or not kind of, but what is very uh, harmful kind of theme and really turning it up on its head in a way like that. I think that's really cool. It is. I botched it a little bit. So besides linking to it, I'll also just read this, this part. Uh, When Lovecraft saw the offspring of two societies as a sign of decay, the film positions Aquaman born Arthur Curry played by Jason Momoa as a character whose background makes him uniquely qualified to both heal the rifts in the undersea kingdom and end the battle between the worlds of land and sea. His mixed-race background isn't a curse, as Lovecraft would have no doubt seen it, but a blessing. Oh, I like that a lot. That's really thoughtful and uh, certainly something that went right over my head. I did not kind of pick up on those themes, um, probably because of the kind of knees in my back, I suppose. And maybe (laughs) just I wasn't that That interferes, I think. Yeah. Well, I didn't pick up on the Lovecraft stuff because, like I said, I'm not as familiar. But, you know, they do – I did think there are different ways to spin things. And there are people who obviously view it bad, like as a bad decision and forbidden and even punishable by death and treason that his mother fell in love with a land dweller. Right, yeah. Instead, he's viewed as, like, through their love and having – you know, learned a lot about both worlds, that this is something that might bring peace 
in a place where there's a lot of tension and war and frank danger. So I, I think that, you know, that's that's really cool to hear some of how that was influenced. And, you know, he he's called, again, like we talked about, his brother kind of uses that to put him down mm-hmm. and to, like, refer to him to kind of get others to view him as, you know, and he calls him a bastard, too. I mean, yeah. it's really, it's pretty messed up stuff. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I Orm is not uh, kind of a likable or really relatable character, and those themes very much fed into that for me. Um, I was actually surprised that he seemed so moved when his mother returned, because mm-hmm. he seemed so dismissive of her, and maybe that's because of his father, or maybe it's because of what he had to do. Or maybe it's because he was about to die and he had other emotions going on. But it's right. like the first time you see him kind of seem, I don't know, to have be a feeling person, I guess, or an Atlantean. Absolutely. Even during the first fight kind of for the kingship that Orm and Arthur have, um, Orm notes that, that Arthur is using his mom's trident and kind of states, yeah, that's very powerful but ultimately it's flawed like our mother was. So even then he very mm-hmm. much is, I mean, it's just another example of, like you said, he's pretty dismissive of his mom. So you're right. It's almost, um, I mean, it's pretty, it's a real kind of change on his presentation, even at the end when he very much is taken aback um, when he sees that not only is she alive, but she's kind of taken Arthur's side in the conflict. Exactly. And I think there, there was another theme in there that, I think probably was most encapsulated by Mira, but this idea of, I think that Orm tried to say, you know, this is treason, and Mira's father tried to say, you know, we need to follow the law, and later Mira tries to convince him to change his mind. No, by law, you know, Arthur actually should be king, Mm -hmm. versus kind of doing what's right, or this idea of morality and law sometimes when they don't line Mm -hmm. up or tradition that it can mean violating the law is actually the right thing to do. And I think that, you know, Mira, his mother and Arthur obviously is more like that. It made me think a little bit about D and D alignments, like good, bad, neutral and lawful versus unlawful and how those aren't kind of grouped together as like the lawful person's always doing the good things. Totally. And so, Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting theme. It's certainly something that's relevant throughout history and time that sometimes laws can be unjust or not lead to peace. And at those times, the right thing to do can mean not following them. And I think it also shows the complexities of that because it means not only personal sacrifice, but it also, Mira describes, it also means feeling disloyal Mm -hmm. and one of the ways I thought that was interesting that it came out, and this seemed kind of like a cultural conversation, is that Arthur's like, isn't it great that you don't have to have this arranged marriage with someone you don't love anymore? And for her, she's kind of like, well, yeah, but marriage isn't really about love for me. It's This is more about loyalty to my country and the traditions and what I do, and I love Atlantis. And so just having, I thought that was a cool moment where it's just people from different roles describing you know, what it means. And obviously she's not a fan of Orm and she's doing, you know, she's trying to defy him, but, uh, but she also has this, some ambivalence about it too. Maybe shifting gears a little bit. Um, I, I kind of want to return to the, this 
idea or what I had said earlier about, and you tweeted earlier about Mira really being kind of, at least for what my opinion is worth, kind of the star of the movie. Um, what an absolutely awesome performance and awesome character who is um, this kind of deep character who's funny and kind of learning about the service world and total badass and kind of has these really cool water-based kind of like uh, hydrokinetic powers. Um, I mean, that scene in the wine cellar was, even though I thought that that sequence overall was pretty prolonged, but that scene was really cool where she made like these wine spears and kind of took out this whole group of kind of attackers at once. I, I mean, what a cool character. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think that, so this is a, a one reflection of that. I brought my bobbleheads. <laughs> I have a lot of those Pop Funko bobbleheads, as you know, even though I haven't bought any for months, but just goes to show how many I bought one time. I have, And also, I should say, a lot of people have probably at least a third to half were given to me as gifts, which is really nice. I have probably 30 now, and my first time I left the movie, which is a lot for someone to have, was like, I need one of Mira. <laughs> she's, sure. She's just super cool. I mean, she brings Arthur's dad back to life. She clearly, like, she can fight very well. She saves his life. I mean, he was going to die at Orm's hands, undoubtedly. And she also fights for the ocean and for for her kingdom and Atlantis so that they, you know, and that, so there's a lot of strength in there and she's very clever about it. And she also, you know, is also just kind. I liked that scene where she's, they're showing the fountain in Sicily and she's making the water turn into dolphins and turtles for the little girl. Right, that was yeah. I thought that was really cool. Absolutely. That was a neat scene at which then led to the kind of the funny Pinocchio line. Where yes. she finds out kind of that this plan that Arthur had was based on what she thought was based on the children's book, but actually based on the film. Um, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you one other question that was maybe just something I didn't understand. So like I've kind of already well, I've belabored this point a bit, but a main or a significant portion of the movie is dedicated towards finding Atlan's trident. Um, it was not clear to me what the actual powers of that trident were. Because Arthur had the kind of capacity to interact or communicate with um, sea-based wildlife already and to some extent kind of control them. So did the trident, was it just really well made? It couldn't be broken as easily? And did it amplify those powers that he had? Because he was able to kind of control sea monsters and kind of the creatures in the trench now i didn't know if if it just was a little bit vague intentionally or if i just didn't totally follow it well i was wondering about that too and since then i've made up a few things that i have no idea how valid they are i one thing i thought of is it you know, this part actually reminded me of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where he has this series of tests that, like, only the worthy person gets it. Mm-hmm. So I wondered if, because people knew of the legend, they knew that if he got it, like, he's really king, and therefore he's worthy, and he proved it. And I do like that the way that he gets it is through humility. I mean, he just yes. says, like, you know, which is, you know, it's not through just completely beating up the monster. Um, so I wondered if it was something like symbolic, like, you know, if he got it, that means that he's 
worthy and able to unite people if it was powers, like you said, in some particular way, or if it meant that in the combat with King Orm, he could defeat him because of how good it is, you know? Right. Although he goes to, you know, he makes sure to do, to not fight underwater that time as part of it, too. So, yeah, just yeah, to kind of... I didn't understand it fully, um, other than those couple of speculations. The other thing, though, so... I don't, I've read very little Aquaman. I think I read, like, the first issue or something of Rebirth, which I liked, but I I, I just had too many that I was behind on and didn't finish right. reading it. Is that, so, like, there's a very clear connection with King Arthur's Legend of the Sword, right? The only the, the next person who is going to rule can pull the sword from the stone. Yep. And that was pretty much with the trident. And obviously his name is King Arthur. And I was like, yep. I never put that together. Is pulling the trident like that, is that part of, is that like canon Aquaman? You know, I, I actually, I don't know. I, you've, you have read about as much Aquaman as I have. Um, my Aquaman is pretty limited too. So I, I always knew that it was a, an especially powerful kind of trident. But in terms of the canon kind of comic book lore related to Aquaman, I don't know the actual story that kind of goes along with how he gets that trident or if it has to kind of be only taken by him who's the true heir. Um, it's a great, great question, I guess, for people who who know Aquaman better than us or maybe um, a, a quick Google search. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, if I... Because if you think of it that way, I think that it is kind of like just showing people like, wow, this mythical thing that we've all heard about and even right. his mom told him the story forever, then it's like... You know he he is truly the leader here, right? Uh, which is you know, powerful in and of itself. It is, but you know it might be more than that, which is how I first interpret it, and that too. I saw I and I mentioned this yesterday. I saw King Arthur: Legend of the Sword in the the 2017 movie version because there are so many different retellings of this of this story, and it was interesting because it kind of is the same idea like. His basically, he was uh, Arthur's robbed of his birthright, and he grows up, kind of separated from it, um, not knowing who he truly is. And then he pulls Excalibur's sword from the stone, and he becomes he embraces his true destiny, which he was reluctant to do before. So it's I had I just had no idea that that was connected to Aquaman before. So I'll have to look into that, or if someone wants to tweet at us, let us know. Just tweet me the entire canonical history of aquaman um you know there's got to be like a 20 minute video that beautifully outlines every single link so i'll be searching for that for the rest of the night i i would think so i know that just on that kind of point the um youtube series known as comics explained is usually my resource for learning about weird things like that um, he has a very nice kind of YouTube voice, and he uses all sorts of frames from the comics to kind of talk about the history. So that might be where I will check to learn about the Trident. And if you find it, send it to me. I will. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. And I'll in, add it to the show notes for others. Perfect. In sum, the movie's fine. I mean, I would probably say you'd be fine to see it in theaters. It looks pretty good on the big screen, but you'd be... Also just fine waiting to catch it on Blu-ray or DVD at home. I don't think 
it's one that you probably have to rush out to see so much, but it's a fun movie. It's certainly one that I would turn on again um, if it was on any of the various streaming services that I subscribe to. Probably not one that I would go out of my way to pick up on Blu-ray or anything. Um, yeah, that's my review, and it's very kind of wishy-washy. No, I, I feel the same way. I, I mentioned I saw this article that was comparing it to Star Wars, because of, like you were saying, how, like, the beautiful world creation and the different types of inhabitants of the different kingdoms and just visually how cool it was and just, you know, they're very, you know, they're trying to prevent this huge war and kind of on this very direct mission. And so, but it's one movie, so it obviously doesn't go into as much depth and connection between the characters. But, um, you know, so I think that was really fun, but I agree with you. I, I think... Just to show that I have some <laughs> some discerning taste. Like I didn't it wasn't like Black Panther or Wonder Woman where I was like, Wow, that was incredible. I did like it better than Justice League though. Yep, I think it was better than Justice League too. But I liked Batman versus Superman better, so people can take my word for with that grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> well, any last closing kind of thoughts? Um, just about the movie or the characters before we wrap up, Katie? No more closing thoughts. I did think his outfit was really cool after he got the trident. <laughs> yeah, that scene was pretty cool. He mm-hmm. looked pretty awesome, and I'm actually really happy that they just went with it, and it just was what it was. I mean, it's a ridiculous kind of like super bright yellow and super bright green <laughs> pants, but it looked pretty cool, and I was happy they just owned it for what it was. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, for sure. Well, that sounds good. Well, we'll probably wrap up there then. That's just kind of our overall thoughts on Aquaman. If you have any thoughts about the character or want to kind of correct our limited history of the character from the comics or any thoughts on the film, um, feel free to contact us or tweet them to us on Twitter, um, message it to us on Facebook, or write us a letter if you can find our personal addresses anywhere, I guess. (laughs) No, just kidding. It's late at night, so I'm being ridiculous. Send send a singing telegram. A singing telegram I would really appreciate. Um, You know, it's the holiday season, so it's kind of the time to give back to your favorite podcasters in the form of singing telegrams about comic book movies. (laughs) That's all I've got. That's the end of the show. (laughs) Happy holidays, everyone. Yeah, that sounds good. Thanks so much for listening in. Happy holidays, and we'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.